You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. music in the late 90s, I was always pretty disappointed in how flat the mass-marketed Christian albums I listened to felt, as if to be Christian meant that that was the only thing you could be, that you could only sing about God and prayer in a way that felt completely compartmentalized from the rest of your life, and completely foreign to me to what being a Christian actually was in my lived experience. With her 2018 album, False Foundations, Rachel Marie makes music that exhibits a much more intersectional kind of Christianity, one that considers gender roles, contains complex theories of death, love, and relationships, and one that seeks to understand a believer's relationship to current politics. That record is out now, and I'm happy that it's brought her to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks so much for being here, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be on a program that is so specifically geared towards what is important to me in my life and as a musician. I'm psyched. Okay. Um, So as I said in my intro, uh, when I was listening to your record in preparation for this interview, um, it really didn't resonate with my past experiences of what Christian music is at all in a really positive way. Um, What it resonated with much more for me were some of the feminist singer-songwriters that I grew up listening to. Um, I definitely hear some Tori Amos in this record, the way that some of your lines kind of have... uh, too many words in them uh, <laughs> in, in a positive way. Yeah. Um, there's a sort of philosophical, uh, philosophical turn um, that made me think of the Indigo Girls, um, but most of all, the, the biggest kind of uh, feminist music reference that I got from your record was Joni Mitchell, um, tonally. So am I completely off base? Who are your musical influences? I love that. I love all of that. (laughs) Um, I I especially love that you hear Indigo Girls. Indigo Girls are huge for me. I've I've been to more Indigo Girls shows than I can count, and I started going with my mom when I was young enough that um, the only time I was allowed to say the F word was singing along with Shame on You at the concert. Like, not in the car, not anywhere else. Only at the show. So, yeah, Indigo Girls were huge for me. Emily Saylor's is one of my absolute favorite songwriters. Um, And I think I definitely sort of, like, felt safe being vulnerable because of artists like them and artists like Joni Mitchell. Um, For me, Patti Griffin is also huge. So she's... And she's also one who 
you know, explored and messed with gender a lot too. I didn't get to see her live until very recently. And that was like a lifelong dream to see Patty Griffin live. Um, yeah. And then I, I did have some, like, I mean, there were other influences, obviously. Like I, my mom had me listening to a lot of like James Taylor and Paul Simon growing up, like those were a couple of other big ones for me, but Indigo oh, Girls great. and Joni Mitchell like nailed it. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> cool. Uh, our moms sound a lot alike. My mom <laughs> raised me on the Laurel Canyon sound too. So I was yes. grooving to James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Carly Simon Perfect. as a kid. So you mentioned when talking about your influences that they gave you the freedom to be vulnerable in your music. And um, I, I definitely hear that vulnerability in a lot of the songs on the record. Uh, in fact, the first time I listened through, I was a little, not necessarily put off by it, but like it felt almost voyeuristic to me listening to the record the first hmm. time, just like... A, a little bit like I was reading someone's diary and like maybe I shouldn't be getting this close uh, <laughs> to to these emotions that are so, so open. So is that tone, that openness, that vulnerability, something that you actively strive for as a writer or does it just come out that way? For a long time, um, and I guess like still for the most part, I write when I feel like I need to, when I feel like I need to process something that I can't process in some other way. So a lot of the emotions that I experience sort of most at my core are really intense and the sort of thing that I only really work through with music. Um, and it also results in a lot of my songs being like kind of upsetting. Um, because I don't usually sit down and write when I don't feel like I really have something I need to process. So that, um, I think the sort of like confessional aspect of it goes along with that and is something that was just how I always used music, but it is a way that I kept writing and didn't stop myself from writing that way for several reasons. One is that when people tell me I need happier songs, I just sort of respond defensively and say, well, who says I need happier songs? Maybe you just don't want to listen to my music and that's fine. And actually that has helped me sort of develop the understanding in a really healthy and positive way, both as an artist and a human, that not everyone is my audience and that's fine. And the people who are my audience are the people who have thanked me for being so painfully honest and open because they've seen themselves in my music in a way that they haven't seen themselves or heard themselves in other people's music. And that's what I always connected to with, even before I'd really experienced a lot of heartache or grief, I think I knew that that was what I connected to about Emily Saylor's songwriting, for instance. Um, that I would get really attached to very specific lines thinking I didn't, I didn't know that someone else had experienced this thing and could phrase it just this way 
that never would have occurred to me, but it's exactly how I feel. And those are the kinds of songwriters and the kinds of songs that I get particularly attached to. And they're also the kinds of songs, the, the songs where I like bear my soul are the songs that people have thanked me for writing because they see themselves in them. So I guess the, the shorter version of the answer is I didn't start out doing it deliberately. It was just my relationship with music, but I have come to the conclusion. I think that that is the thing that comes naturally to me that is in some ways the most helpful to other people. So I've never tried to stop myself from doing it. Yeah. I really like the long version of that answer a lot. Um, And I didn't entirely plan to say this on the air, but I feel like it belongs here, so I will. Um, Definitely a song on the record that does that for me, that kind of self-representation that you were talking about, um, is the first track on the record, Not Okay, um, which I actually, real talk, listened to like six times on my bus commute on the way home, because uh, I had a really ridiculous day today, like just, uh. there's a lot of deadlines at work, and my grandma is sick, and I just, I feel like there's too much in my brain, and I can't hold it all up. Uh, so the, the message of that song is that we feel like we have to support everything as, uh, as people or, or as women. I, I really kind of felt the song, um, as, as a message about, um, women and perfectionism and this kind of idea that, like, we have to do all the things and be in control of all the things um, in this sort of magic Leslie Nope way. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that that's not a realistic expectation. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of needed to listen to that today, not just, um, not just to prepare for this interview, but also I feel like I needed to give myself um, the the message of the song, the fact that like it's okay to be not okay, and we can kind of give things over to to God and to the people around us, and that is not failing. I am a home that I have built out of paper and paint, limbs stretched to their limit, holding up walls against the rain. Times I stay standing. I do the standing because I thought I had to be a fortress. Will you give me and say that my effort is blessed and you'll invest in this mess? But for you. So thank you. Thanks for that. Um, 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I, I also wanted to um, ask a, a kind of broader question about that song in particular. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the central metaphor in the song and also um, the central metaphor that the album title false foundations is evoking is uh the parable of the wise and foolish builders in matthew 7 um yep absolutely okay so um i'm sure that uh (laughs) all of our our listeners know that parable but can you uh can you give us the kind of quick version quick summary version Oh gosh! Now I like. I don't know. Now, now I feel like the pressure's on. Like I'm gonna mess up somehow. It's okay to be not okay. You don't have to get it perfect. I suppose that's true. Um, so it's. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, everyone who takes this who who takes this message. Um, and, like, everyone who takes this message and puts it into practice is like the person who built their house on the rock. You know, you have a firm foundation and everything is going to come and beat you down and you're fine. And everyone who hears these words and neglects them um, is the person who built their house on the sand and your house is going to come crashing down around you if that's the situation you've put yourself in because you had, and that's sort of what the part, one of the parts that gets to me the most is like, it's about hearing the words and using them or not. Like, it's not like you don't have the information. It's not like you haven't been told. Uh, so, so for me, that's, I know I'm like, I'm getting away from the parable and just talking about myself, but, um, the, the, the moment of like having, I don't know, like knowing what's available to you and just not using it or neglecting it or rejecting it is the part that gets to me because it's not like I ever, it's not like I ever didn't have a strong community. It's not that I ever didn't know that I could um, take everything to God. You know, I always knew that. I always had love. I always had support from God and from the community of the church. And yet somehow you still end up feeling like you have to do it all yourself. Like, why? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I think that's really true. And you apologized for going away from the parable and talking about yourself. But I don't think that apology... Uh, is necessary because cool. what what I think is super cool about this song and unique to my experience uh, of the way this kind of music works is like you're taking the parable and this cultural message um, or critique of the the cultural message that we have to do everything and you're putting them next to each other in a way that they they sort of read together and inform each other. And I felt like my understanding of the parable was deeper 
because I saw it laid on top of this cultural message and I'd never really thought about those two, like those two things are both true, but I'd never really thought of them as true together before. So I think, uh, I think that's really useful and, uh, and different, deeper than, um, a lot of Christian music and especially a lot of Christian music for women or by Mm -hmm. women. Yeah. And actually, I, to be honest, I didn't even, you know, I thought of the societal expectation, and especially, I think for me, part of it is generational, too, like an expectation that we have to, like, build ourselves from the ground up somehow magically, even though we came into an economy that makes no sense and isn't supportive of us. So I had even seen it that way, but I hadn't explicitly thought about the gendered aspect of it critically until you said that. And I'm so glad you did because now, now that I, now that I have that running through my head, of course that expectation of doing it all is gendered. And I think I wasn't thinking about it because I'm the one who wrote it and everything I write is gendered because I'm a woman and I was socialized as a woman. So I think it took the outside perspective for me to be like, oh, yeah, that's all over it. It's everywhere. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm I'm glad uh, I could help there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we've been talking a lot about... Um, about identity and and um, intersectionality, mm-hmm. when you're writing music, um, when you're writing a song like "Not Okay" or other songs, are you considering your identities as separate? Are you thinking of yourself as a Christian, as a woman, as uh, a feminist, a pacifist? Other identities that you that you name check. <laughs> um, in your music or, um, or not? I, I think it comes and goes. Um, I sort of, I'm, I tend to be sort of reluctant to, I don't know, I guess sort of deliberately focus on Christianity as, like the central aspect of my being, I think in large part because of what you said about most mainstream Christian music just being full albums about praying. And you're like, that's not what you do 24-7. Like you get up and you eat breakfast and you have human relationships. You don't just fall at the feet of God 24-7 And we try to with our actions, like in theory, we want to be praying 24 hours a day with the way we live our lives, but that's not reasonable. So I think that's a sort of defense mechanism to stay away from that unless I'm writing something specifically based on a struggle that I'm having directly with God or a struggle um, that I'm having or something that I'm trying to write based on a parable or a passage. But um, I think especially more lately and especially in songs like Hello Stranger, I try to 
I try to think about the way I'm situated in the world as a white woman in America, as a white Christian woman in America and like a straight passing white Christian woman in America, like I, who grew up middle-class. Like I try, especially lately to, um, situate sort of think constantly about that identity and where it places me in the world in my life and also in my songwriting. And I think Hello Stranger was, it's definitely the most overtly political song on the album. Um, yeah, and it's that's, also a, that's definitely true. Hello Stranger, can I offer you my time? I don't have answers, but I can lend an ear. I believe that your anger is justified and that we're all made weaker by fear. But I understand if trust is hard and I understand if you're just too scarred because the problem looks just like It's a song where I tried to be really cognizant of where I am and what my privileges are, especially because I I get really frustrated with what seems like a consistent thing where like white folk musicians in New England will get together at an open mic and we'll all sing songs about how the Republican Party is mean and Trump is bad and then we feel really good about ourselves and then we go home and like what what on earth have we done like what did that accomplish we all went and felt good about ourselves because we sang songs about how we know what's right and then we leave um so I've actually been like wanting to write sort of like a parody song about like I'm a white cisgender folk musician and I sing songs about the right and then I feel good about me like I I find that incredibly frustrating so when I try at all to write political songs wow sorry about that voice crack um I I try to be really cognizant of where I am and what my privileges are and to call out people like me and to call out myself um like, which is why there's a line in Hello Stranger that says the problem looks just like me. And that's not me trying to get away from being the problem. You know, if anything, that's saying Hillary Clinton is also the problem. You know, she looks just like me. I wrote I wrote that song before the election. So it's actually really troubling when people hear that song and go, yeah, I hate Trump, too. And I'm like, OK, fine. Great. Like the whole political system just like is a war machine. Like it's not, it's not Trump's bad. It's like, maybe we as white people who feel good about ourselves can like actually reflect on what we can do and change 
and how we can interact with people who don't look exactly like us and acknowledge how we are the problem. Um, and that's a conversation that I have with people all the time who are like, well, I'm not the problem. I'm working hard. And I say, yes, you are working hard and I'm working hard. And by nature of who we are, we're still the problem. So that's, <laughs> that's the only time that I really feel like, or that's the only way I think that I focus really hard on what my identity is when I'm writing and the rest of the time, like if, if it's me working through my own grief or heartache or like trouble with God, then I sort of just let that happen naturally. But when it comes to the way I interact with the world and the way I'm trying to instruct people, it like, and that sounds high and mighty even as I say it, but I try to think really hard about where I am, you know, socially and socioeconomically and if if anything I'm singing is instructive at all, I want that to inform it. I think, first of all, I'm glad that you are talking about Hello Stranger, because I think that is a really important song on this record to talk about right now. Um, even as you say it was written earlier, I think mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of debates going on um, right now in evangelicalism and in other pockets of Christianity as to what a believer's responsibility is to engage in these political debates. And um, something I've found really intriguing about this song specifically is that, um, well, everything you said about, uh, to to use a really overused, uh, kind of at this point, disgusting 2018 phrase, uh, every effort you made to check your own privilege um yeah (laughs) in the song um i i thought was really um really interesting because you you do implicate uh yourself and you do implicate kind of most of us as uh beneficiaries of a a broken system so it's it's not just kind of finger pointing Mm mm-hmm Yeah, and that's exactly what I want to, like, yeah, I sort of, I, I, on on one hand, I want to avoid finger pointing, and on the other hand, I want to make sure that everyone in the room knows that I'm pointing the finger at everyone in the room, and not just, like, that rich Republican in the corner. Yeah. If that makes sense. (laughs) It does, and I I think that's clear from from the very beginning of the song, um, the the first several lines. Um, Hello, stranger. Can I give you what I have? I don't have all that much, but I don't need it all. And I was taught by the stories of a Middle Eastern man that I should give what I can. So in those first few lines, you've got. Um, a, a kind of racialized Jesus, which I think is something that a lot of white Christians don't think about enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you've got um, a a really strong reference to oh, it's Matthew something. What's the verse? The whatever you do to the least of these uh, you do for me. Um, that's 
sort of happening under yeah. under those lines too. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I, I understand what you were trying to do there, and I think it's good that you um, do it in a way that doesn't let us off the hook. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that verse also sort of has the you know, the story of the Good Samaritan running underneath it for me too. Um, and I think especially the, the lines afterwards, you know, especially in dangerous times. And it's, you know, one of those things that like, it's not like you were walking down some well-lit street in some nice town and someone like, like didn't have a coat and you gave them a coat, you know, it's not that like the road to Samaria was supposed to be notoriously dangerous, you know? It, so, so especially when I hear Christians saying, well, sure, I want to let people into this country, but I don't want to put my family and my children and my loved ones at risk. My response is like, well, that's our job. That's what we're called to. We're called to put ourselves in risky situations the stories aren't about easy situations. They never have been. They're about times that are hard and decisions that are difficult to make and putting yourself at risk to help someone who is in more need than you are at that moment. And I'm like getting super preachy, but I just get mad. <laughs> I I think you should be. I I agree <laughs> that that's what... I mean, you should be, we should be, we should all be. Right. Um, yeah, the gospel does not call us to a life free of trouble and risk. Yeah. So since we've been talking a bit about the way you use biblical text in your songs, uh, I wanted to know... Is there a particular passage or parable um, that you haven't written into a song yet that you'd really like to? Um, and and if so, um, what is it and why? I'm not sure. Um, I think there is there is definitely something in me that wants to write something more explicitly about. Um, or at least using using the Good Samaritan story as a launch pad. Like, I'd like to do that, because that, that is under the surface of Hello Stranger for me, but I know it's not obvious, and people aren't necessarily hearing it or thinking of it that way. Um, and one of the other images that, for some reason, sticks with me, and I think it's because when I was a camp counselor one year, um, my small group decided to name themselves the tiny camels um, because it's easier for uh, uh, the eye a of a needle yeah. the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven so one of the kids just said well what if they were really tiny camels <laughs> sure and I don't know why I just found that so hysterical um, but that's also one of those things that I do get really, I think it's because it's one of those things that I do get really preachy about. Like, I, I don't know if I'm in the home of someone who is a really devoted congregant at a church that I love and their home is just 
massive and fancy, I find myself getting judgy and I don't like it. I like, I don't like that about myself. And I, and I certainly hope that if I ever had a ton of money that I would then use it differently, but I just, I don't know. And I've had people who I love and respect say, Rachel, you can't judge people for having a lot of money and using it to make themselves comfortable in the way that they see fit just because they're Christian. And I'm like, I hear you and I respect what you're saying, but like, can't I though? Because can we have (laughs) this abundance? Like that kind of abundance. Can we choose to maintain that particular kind of abundance and like really be honest with ourselves about living a Christian life? And I don't know. And, you know, I could just be, you know, I could just be blowing smoke and maybe someday I'll have a lot of money and I'll like have a big house and lots of fancy art and like, 20 pantsuits and like I don't know just just like I don't know if if I had a ton of money because I've never had a ton of money you know like my parents are fine but I personally in my young life have never certainly had just an exorbitant amount of wealth but I hope that if I do I'm gonna give most of it away and live simply like that's what I want but I don't know that's I, like, a... and I know I'm being judgy. I acknowledge that. Well, I, I think we're all judgy about certain things. Uh, but my response uh, to that is twofold. One, I would totally listen to the Tiny Camels song. And yes. <laughs> two, uh, it is wonderful and amazing that your two wealth markers are art and pantsuits. That's, <laughs> that is spectacular. Uh, well, and then even like, uh, now I'm thinking, now I'm listening to myself and I'm thinking, well, if I'm, well, and I guess that's the thing is like, if it's a bunch of, if it's fancy art by dead white dudes, then like, I'm still judgy. But if it is, but then if it's art by like people I want to support because they actually need support, then I, then, cause art can be representative of completely different things too. And it can function in completely different ways. Well, yeah, and and there's a way to do it right, too. Like, Beyonce, for example, just hired um, the first black photographer to shoot a Vogue cover to shoot her Vogue cover. Like, that's that's the way to do those signifiers of wealth, right? Right, yes, exactly. (sighs) And And then when I'm being judgy, people are like, well, you have no idea how they're spending the rest of their money. And I'm like, but I can blatantly see how they're spending a good chunk of it i don't know okay uh (laughs) we'll we'll be looking forward uh to to your exploration of uh theology and wealth on your next record maybe I will live it and when-
So I, I want to talk a little bit. We we talked quite a bit about um, the first track, Not Okay. I want to talk about a couple of other um, songs on the record that stick out to me. Um, I'm not going entirely in order, I promise. But <laughs> I it was interesting to me that the second song is the second song. Uh, it's called Rededication. And it's very much about um, giving grace and and receiving grace and understanding that uh, failure and and forgiveness is a process. And um, because of the message of not okay coming before it, I kept hearing uh, rededication as kind of an answer to that, as like essentially like the liturgy like the confession of sins comes first and then the forgiveness comes second uh that's great am am i uh am i ridiculous uh is that that order on purpose or am i just continuing to read my own struggle with perfectionism (laughs) into your record you're not ridiculous um i love the liturgy parallel that's amazing i definitely I definitely put it after Not Okay sort of as like a spiritual pick-me-up. I don't know if it was, I don't know if I would have gone so far as to say that I intended it as a direct answer, but it was definitely like, here's some sort of heavy wrestling with God and community thing, and then here it's okay. Yeah, so... There's definitely an aspect of that that was deliberate. Um, I also sort of wanted to put rededication second so that in in the hopes that people who might not have heard the God stuff in Not Okay might think about it because rededication came second, I have a sort of genre of music that I refer to as my sneaky Jesus songs. So I think that's awesome. So I think not okay is a sneaky Jesus song and rededication is not at all a sneaky Jesus song. It's just a blatant Jesus song. Um, So I sort of wanted to put that there so that people who might not have known about the sneaky Jesus and not okay would loop back and hear it that way or have the possibility of hearing it that way. And one of the other things that I love about Rededication is it's the only song that I've ever written as a commission. Um, and it was for my friend Jody, who was being consecrated as a presbyter in the Moravian church and wanted me to write a song for the service. And the theme of Rededication is just the entire theme of being consecrated as a presbyter. You know, she'd been an ordained minister for however many years and this was her rededication to her ministry. So there was that whole theme. And then she was using, um, she was using that scripture and I can't for the life of me remember what it is, but 
Is it Matthew? I feel like everything's Matthew. Um, I know several things <laughs> I looked up for this interview came from Matthew. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking at the song lyrics He's right now, over. but... Um, but, so that's, um, it's the, it's the, the, it's the least of these, you know, it's, uh, my lyrics are, I hear him ask, did you feed me? Did you come to my side when I was sick and tired? Did you let me inside? Um, and so, you know, it's Jesus asking you, did you do all these things for me? And you say, when? Oh, right. So that's... Well, when you did them for anyone. Yeah, Matthew 25, 40. Cool. Um, So she used that scripture as part of her service. So I used the theme of rededication and that scripture as inspiration to write that song. And I think it's really cool that the response... um, That the song that ended up sort of responding to Not Okay on the record was a song that I wrote for a friend who had been sort of a spiritual presence in my life for a long time. She was one of my camp counselors when I was a kid. Um, and I just remember in, in middle school and high school, she was one of those counselors who we would sit outside the cabin until 2 AM having important conversations. Um, So she was one of those people for me who was there for my, I don't know, this sort of pivotal stretch of years for my spiritual growth. So her providing sort of the inspiration and the impetus to write a song that could be an answer to Not Okay is really cool for me just as a giant symbol and not okay. I wrote years ago. I wrote, I wrote not okay at least five years ago, and I wrote rededication last year. So that's also a cool part of that answer to me is sort of how far I've come in my own ability to forgive myself. That's really cool and really great that you could um, make a piece of art that uh, contributes something to someone who gave so much to you. Right. That felt great. Yeah. Sarah Bessie calls those people our spiritual midwives. Ooh. That that they sort of birth us through the hard places in our lives. It's always cool when we can give back to those people. I love that. Fences and attitudes keep us apart. Compromise tends to wear thin. his heart but in the end he could not let her in it happens too often when it happens to you too often it's happened to me and i've been the villain and i've been the victim and i've been the blind referee and i'd like to quit looking for paradise But I can't, and I won't, and I can't understand how the best is the best you can do. It's a hard thing to hear. 
you down. It's a pretty bad feeling. So I said I'm not going to keep going in order of tracks. I apparently <laughs> lied. That's um, fine. If I have a favorite song on the record, and that keeps changing, like, every time I listen to it. But right now, today... Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, it's funny how that happens. <laughs> uh, right now, today, if I had to pick a favorite song, I would say that it's uh, Looking for Paradise, which is the third track, and... I don't know. I feel like I'm telling too much about myself. Uh, so before I talk about how I like it, um, can you just tell us about that song and uh, explain a little bit about it? What do you? What is it doing? So that actually is one of two songs on the album that was written by my dad. Um, and he sings on both of them. So that's Looking for Paradise and Ain't Nothing Up But the Ceiling are my dad's songs. Um, and looking for paradise is sort of like his classic. Um, he's been playing it for decades. It's everyone's favorite. And he has said that the two verses he wrote about two different situations in his life and that the chorus just wrote itself. Um, and I always love those, like, I don't always feel like, you know, I don't always feel like God or the universe is writing through me, but I've definitely had moments like that. And it always sort of read to me like that was what was happening for my dad. Um, yeah. And I just, I think it's so poignant and so simple and just so human Especially the second verse. Like, it's a hard thing to hear when a friend puts you down. Like, the second how, verse how is my favorite. Straightforward. It's so straightforward and it's so real. That I, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's one of those songs that I've, I've always loved ever since I was a kid. So getting to record it with my dad. And he plays, he plays bass on the whole record. And he, I, I might have already said, sings harmony on those two tracks. So that was really cool to be able to do that with him. That's fantastic that that's your dad. I was going to ask about those two tracks specifically because they, while they fit cohesively with the rest of the record, musically they feel a little different. They're mm -hmm. um, they're a lot more country-tinged. Yeah. Um, I, I think that might be one reason why um, I was drawn to... Uh, to those two songs. I'm from Georgia originally. I live in the Midwest now. Um, so I I heard uh, the fiddle in the opening of Looking for Paradise, and I was like, oh, I miss yeah. that. That's yeah. nice. Um, but they, they do feel uh, kind of different. Is there a reason um, why you put those songs in the places that you did on the record, or or could you talk about sort of how they how they fit in with the rest of what the record is doing? I definitely had to separate them. Like, that was deliberate. Because I was like, I can't just... They both just sound like they're my dad's songs. So I felt like if I put them next to each other, it was just going to be, like, too much. <laughs> um, I guess it's been a while now since I've thought about why... 
the order of the record is specifically what it is. Um, I know I wanted, I wanted looking for paradise to be towards the beginning because I know, like, I know what can happen to people where they go to listen to a new album and then they listen to four songs and then they accidentally do something else. So I wanted that to be at the beginning because I do think it's one of, I don't know, just like one of the strongest songs I know, really, lyrically. Um, so I wanted people to hear it. Um, and then, yeah, I just wanted to separate them for for the sake of the instrumentation and the harmonies being what they are to not just slam up against each other. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, but I, yeah. I, what I really enjoyed um, about that song, other than the kind of homey comfort uh, nostalgia feeling that it gave me is uh I feel like it's really clever too, like the mm -hmm. the way that the um the instrumentation and the lyrics kind of pull you in different directions. Hmm. To me, like there's this soft fiddle and it's uh it's playing waltz time and you are sort of really steady and think you know where it's going and then um really kind of clever arch lyrics like the the end of the first uh the end of the first verse uh it happens too often when it happens to you too often it's happened to me that repetitive inversion and then yeah. my favorite line uh and i've been the villain and i've been the victim and i've been the blind referee and the tone yeah, the tone in your voice too. The tone in your voice when you sing that line is so, like, gleefully mischievous. <laughs> like, I'm really, I'm really kind of obsessed with that line. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's, that was one of my favorite things to, honestly, like, just singing the word victim. Like, I think, and I think the melody of it, like, is in exactly the right place. I don't know, but, like, I can just, like... I could just, like, I don't know, the way that I can just belt out the word victim, I don't know. I just, I get really excited every time I do it. And I don't usually play that song live unless it's with my dad. And then I hand my dad the guitar, and he plays the guitar, and I sing it. But I do love singing that song. And I think as as far as, as, as for how those songs fit into the rest of the record, I definitely do think they're are there are definitely clever turns that my dad takes in his writing that I don't quite have down. Um, so I love the opportunity to sing those things. And he, I think, is similarly open and honest. You know, there are definitely parts of those two songs that are just as sort of straightforward and vulnerable as what I do, but I do it in sort of a much more flowery, like you said, overstuffed Tori Amos kind of way. And his is so simple. Um, so simple, and yet he does the clever stuff. Um, so I think it, it, it fits into what I'm doing with the rest of the record as far as I'm being vulnerable, here it is. But it definitely has these different twists and turns that my songs don't have. 
Cool. I, I like that. Uh, I like that description of difference. I think that makes a lot of sense. So what's your favorite song on the record right now? I know you said it changes too, but yeah, I'm glad if you, you had to pick that. one. <laughs> ah, if I had to pick one right this very moment. Oh no. Now I'm just like running through them and I don't know. Um, no judgment, safe space. I think lately I've been on a on a let me be kick. We couldn't have known. We couldn't have up to hold us and we couldn't stay standing we didn't know what we partly because I wrote that song for my best friend and his birthday party is on Friday. So I've just been thinking about, I've been thinking about how much I love him. So I've been thinking about that song probably. Um, but I also, what do I like about that song? I like, it definitely has the overstuffed stuff. It's definitely one of my very few, sort of blatantly happy songs, even though I think everything I write sounds sad because my voice just sounds sad somehow. Um, but I think I like, I like, I like like the overstuffed line thing and I like the violin that's on it. I think that's a ton of fun. And I also am particularly attached to that song, I think, because even though it's a happy song about a very positive relationship, it's still about the work it took to get there. Um, someone asked me recently what I'm most proud of in my life. And I think honestly, it's my relationship with my best friend because, you know, we've, we've been doing this for over 10 years and it's not like it was just, easy. You know, I think there are people whose best friends from high school are not their friends at all anymore. And it's, and that it's, it's just the kind of thing where like, that would never happen with us because our relationship wasn't just, we're best friends because it's easy. You know, it, it's sort of That's a real been... accomplishment, maintaining that kind of work that long. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we were always sort of in the trenches together and you know, we worked the soil when it was just soil and we didn't know what we were doing. And then 
now we're both blooming into the people we are and they're such different people, but like we've been working this garden for so long, so hard that like, it's going to be a healthy garden. Like we're fine. That's really beautiful. Thanks. And, I, yeah. And happy almost birthday. <laughs> I'll, I'll let him know you said so. <laughs> so I think we're close to uh, the end of our conversation about the length we want uh, the episode to be. Here at Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to let our guest have the last word. So, um, before we give you the very last word, tell our listeners where they can get false foundations and any other records of yours that they might want. You can get false foundations and uh, my 2012 album, There Is Love. Wow, that was so long ago. Um, on iTunes, Bandcamp, Spotify, probably Amazon, I don't know, anywhere else that streams music, you can find it. We will link to your iTunes and Bandcamp pages uh, awesome. in the show notes for this episode, so uh, listeners can, can access those. And now we really will let you have the last word. Can you tell us either a question you never get asked that you really would like to tell us the answer to or just anything you'd like to leave the listeners with I think honestly the questions I never get asked are all the questions I were asked today and it was so good <laughs> um, and as far as a closing thought I think just I think so much of what I have seen Christianity and I think it's most harmful forms due to people is make us feel like it's not okay to not be okay and make us feel like if that make, I don't know, I guess like to make us feel like it's, not okay to be complicated, messy humans. And that's exactly who Christ knows we are. We're complicated, messy humans. And I think what I want people to do, as is evidenced in my perhaps overly confessional and messy music, is I think God is here to work through that with us. And just like, don't be afraid to be messy. And if, I don't know, if you feel like you need some empathy, you can go listen to my music and listen to how messy I am. <laughs> yeah, I think like, it's okay to be exactly where you are. And plenty of humans and plenty of people who call themselves Christians might judge you for being there and God won't. I think that's a wonderful thought to end on. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Rachel, and thanks for participating in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. This has been awesome. <laughs>